the feeling of flying through the air. No harnesses, no safety straps, nothing to hold you back. Just you and all the speed and all the strength that you can muster fighting against gravity and launching and flying yourself through the air. Now it's only for like half a second or so, but really it's a pretty big deal. That exhilarating feeling of being free, being weightless. It's like nothing else I've ever experienced. The Olympic athlete Jeff Hartwig, he describes the pole vault like this. He said, a skilled pole vaulter must possess the speed of a sprinter, the strength of a weightlifter, the coordination of a gymnast, and the courage of a daredevil. I would never be described as any of those things. But I did pole vault in high school, and I was pretty good at it. There was something about it that just worked for me, and I was pretty decent at it. The pole vault at the end of the day is simply about physics. The athlete that can move the fastest running down the runway has the greatest potential while holding on to this enormous lever to launch themselves into the air and go incredibly vertical into the air. Uh, when I first began, I was jumping about seven feet. Uh, if, if our friend Walter was here this morning, he's seven feet tall just about. So I was jumping over Walter, but I needed a stick to do it, okay? And so uh, that's about seven feet. Later, I was able to, to jump over about 10 feet. The next year, 11 feet. So now I'm getting higher than a basketball goal. Now, now 12 feet. Now I'm getting almost over the backboard uh, in the basketball goal. Riding the pole into the air, releasing and turning, doing a pole turn over the bar, falling to the mat. It sure did feel a whole lot like flying. And at my best, I was running somewhere in the range of like a 4.6 or a 4.9 if I was running the 40 in football. Something like that. But I'm carrying a 13 and a half foot stick at the same time. And so running, sprinting down the runway. And when the plant is timed correctly, meaning that you are running at top speed, that pole, the end of the pole, 13 and a half feet down, hits the bottom of the box in stride and takes you off and shoots you into the air. Mine was a 13 and a half foot pole, and I was crossing a crossbar at about 12 and a half feet. So, 13 and a half foot pole, 12 and a half feet was the crossbar. So, what that means is that I, I was able to run pretty fast. I had pretty powerful legs, but in a nutshell, my upper body was like a weakling. I could not get my upper body any higher than my hands were. On the pole. And so while I was jumping over 12 and a half feet or so, the Olympians, those guys are, are using a pole that's 16 and 17 feet long, and they are going over a bar that is 20 feet or more. They are launching themselves into the sky, which is why I only did it in high school and I am not an Olympic athlete. Those guys are incredible. In fact, I was told when I tried out for the track team at Houghton College, thinking maybe I could get a scholarship for Houghton College, they said that would be pretty good if you were trying out for our women's track team. So, (laughs) I did not get a scholarship to Houghton College or any other college uh, for track. So why am I telling you this? Who cares? Why do you need to know about my high school accolades? Why do you need to know uh, where the section six standings are, why ECIC is important, and why Western New York is important in the pole vault? You just don't care, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. 
Uh, but today I want you to hear it. I want you to know how the pole vault works a little bit so that it's some type of memory tool for you today. I want to use it as an illustration as we look at a familiar passage that helps you see it in a new way. And so today's sermon title, as you see it on the screen here, is called Raising the Bar. And so my name is Pastor Milo. I introduced myself earlier, but if you're watching from home for the first time, or if you're here in the first time on site for the first time, I want you to, to be welcomed here. I want you to be encouraged to be here. We make it an appointment, uh, 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 important point of what we do each week is that we're going to preach God's word. So if you've got your Bible out, I hope that you do. We're in Matthew chapter 5. If you're watching at home, get your Bibles out. We're in a new international version today. Uh, you can do that in a digital version or you can do that with a physical version. We're, we're going to be together in God's word. So, so bring your Bible, bring a pen, bring something to write with, mark something down so that you remember what has been said here each week. Like I said, this was a good week for you to come. I don't know if you were planning to do something else. Normally you go to the Bills game, but today you're here because there's no Bills game. Whatever it is, you're here, you made it, I'm glad, because this is an important passage for you to, to, to be a part of. Jesus covers some pretty crazy things. We're about to get into it here. Jesus covers a murder trial. Jesus covers civil court cases. Jesus covers marriage, adultery, divorce. And then, if that wasn't enough, he takes on what to do if, they're, if you're in a physical altercation. Uh, what to do if you are uh, being addressed by the government and the government is overreaching. What do you do in response to that? Or how to, how to respond if you're brought face to face with a sworn enemy. What should you do? And then pretty much when we get to the end of the chapter, he just drops the mic at chapter 5 and lets us deal with the realities of the situation. Sound exciting, right? Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So if you have a red letter Bible like I do, this part of scripture, if you look in this part of scripture, meaning the red letters are, are, are a way to be able to change the font so that we can see with, if you have a Bible like this, you can see these are the words that Jesus himself, while he is on the earth in, in a physical nature, walking the earth with us, these are the words that he spoke to his listeners. This is all coming directly from Jesus Christ, the mouth of the Son of God. Now, if we're going to read through this sermon, beginning to end, in its entirety this morning, it would take about 10 minutes. That's all. The Sermon on the Mount is only about a 10-minute read. And here it's taking us at least 10 weeks. And we could take many, many more weeks. Because what Jesus is doing here, he is, he is flipping us upside down in so many different ways. Because in 10 minutes, he completely changes the way that we are supposed to look at the earth, look at this human experience that we have uh, here and how to live it. It's a new way of living that he calls the kingdom of God. And so today's sermon being called Raising the Bar, we will see here in today's passage, we're going to cover a lot of material, I've got a lot of slides, the guys upstairs are like, man, are you going to get through all this? I don't know, but we're going to try. That there are six different times that Jesus is going to review the baseline, and then he is going to raise the bar. He's going to review the baseline, and he's actually going to describe how the, how the people, humankind, we're not even meeting the baseline, and then he's going to raise the bar. He's going to do it six different times in this chapter. So let's begin. In the first one, Jesus is going to review the baseline of this. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. You have heard it said, the people long ago said, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So the baseline is don't murder. 
That's the baseline. We want to we start there. Jesus is kind of starting the conversation with this one. And I think most of us would come to the room this morning and you think, uh, I've, I've had a bad day, I've had a bad week, there's some things I've gotten mixed up in that I didn't want to get mixed up in. But I don't think that any of you murdered anyone this week. If you did, talk to me after the service and there'll be someone else talking to you soon after that. What this is about isn't just murder. It's actually a bigger conversation that comes back to the Old Testament, that comes back to the Ten Commandments. A lot of these do. It comes back to the Old Testament law that they were living by. And this is one example of a bigger idea that you and I would be familiar with and most of us would agree with, the idea of morality, living life in a certain level of moral play. Uh, where we are actually looking at one another and saying, we, we just want to live a life of morality. And many times, we can have conversations with people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who are far from him, but they would agree on a stance that says, but I can be okay with you as a Christian, or be okay with your church, or be okay with the things that you set as ideals, because we should be a moral people. But even in this, morality has not, that, that's the standard, the bar has actually been lowered to civility. Hey, let's be civil with one another. Let's not murder each other. (laughs) How absurd is that? But how true it was for Israel. That they needed to hear this again and again and again. That that you need to figure out how to live together, to, to dwell in the same land together. The Old Testament Israelites would have all types of foreigners that would come and live with them in, and be intermingled with them in their lands. So they had to be reminded again and again that there are other ways to deal with the dispute. There's other ways to deal with these things. Don't murder each other. It's not allowed. There's a certain level of civility that is being asked. So that's the baseline. Stop murdering each other. Jesus is going to raise the bar. So if that's the baseline, here's the bar as it's being raised. Let's continue, verse 22. But I tell you. So in all six of these things, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, and he's going to give them a baseline, give them a law, give them something that they are familiar with. Them as Israelites are living under this code. He's going to say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He's going to take it to another level. He does it six times in our passage today. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So we started with murder. You should not murder. And Jesus just like escalates the thing to an incredible amount. He said, the same type of offense that murder is, is if you hold anger in your heart. And you say, well, I don't hold anger in my heart. Then he said, well, let me give you an example. He says, the example is raka. That That would be, you idiot, So if you think in your mind ever, if you see somebody in traffic, you see somebody at work, and you go, what an idiot. Here you are. Welcome to the club. All right? This passage is for you. Anyone who says, you fool, you idiot, you will be in the danger of hell. Because what has happened is morality has been reduced to Civility, if we're civil with each other, must be we can keep the balance of life in balance and therefore we're doing okay. And Jesus is going to raise the bar and say, no, no, no. You are misunderstanding. You are misinterpreting 
what the law is actually communicating. So he gives us even further, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and when you get there, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. He gives another example, 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge might hand you over to the officer, and then he might hand you over to be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out of prison until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is giving us an example here. Again, the baseline is this. Morality has been reduced to civility. Isn't this the world that we live in today? That it's not right or wrong. It's just whether it can be proved or not proven in court. So you might have done something wrong, but if there's no evidence of it, if, the, if there's no beyond a reasonable doubt, then must be it didn't happen, or must be it's okay, and you can go on and walk through the rest of your life without that. And Jesus says, no, that is unacceptable. Specifically in this example of coming to church, giving your gift at the altar. Jesus is on this mountainside, says he's in Capernaum. The temple is in Jerusalem, and that's where the altar would be there. And so when Jesus says, if you get to the altar, there is, if, if, if over there is the mountainside that Jesus is teaching this on, then over there on that mountainside, they begin the journey to come to the temple to make an offering before the Lord. That journey, that distance, is somewhere between 80 and 90 miles. So 80 or 90 miles away, you decide, I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to worship. He says, when you arrive there, and you realize that there is something between you and a brother, before you offer your gift at the altar, before you come to worship, before you try to pray to me, go back and deal with the thing that's going on back there. Go back 80 miles. Correct the wrong. Then come back here. That is a raising of the bar, is it not? It says we're going we're to push this beyond because morality has been reduced to civility. You know, Jesus said morality is more than civility. Living uh, with one another is more than civility. Morality requires sacrifice. Morality actually requires sacrifice. Jesus raising the bar saying, no, if you're going to live together, if you're going to, to live as, as you should in the kingdom of God, it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require 180 miles of travel for you to get this right before you come and you try to worship in my temple. Settle matters quickly, he tells his listeners. If you're angry with your brother, if you're angry with your sister, if you're calling someone an idiot, he says, deal with it. Even if it means that you have to do it at a tremendous sacrifice to yourself, deal with it. Get it right. I don't believe he's equating anger as the same as murder. I think we have to be careful about that to say, well, this sin is equal to murder. It is not equal, but it is still wrong before the Lord. And he still wants it corrected before he is going to allow you to come into his perfect and holy space and offer for worship. It may require, it will require sacrifice for you to be able to do that. So here's the first example. Jesus has reviewed the baseline and he has taken it up a notch. He has raised the bar. Let's go to the second example. 
The second example is this in verse 27. Here comes that same formula. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments? This is pretty basic stuff. We, we kind of get this. You should not commit adultery. If you're in a relationship with someone, you should, if you're in marriage, you should not commit adultery. You should not go outside of the bounds of marriage. You should not be with someone else sexually. You should not commit adultery. But marriage, in their context, and I think in our context too, you would fully agree with this, that marriage has been reduced to monogamy. Marriage has been reduced to monogamy. What do I mean by that? That means, have you stayed together with the person that you married? And that's the baseline. That's it. That's as far as we go. And that's what was happening in this culture. Why do you think that so many passages in the Old Testament, why do you think so many of the prophets are dealing with prostitution in Israel? They're dealing with that because it became part of the culture that, well, as long as I stay with my wife, as long as the the marriage is whole, then I'm not committing adultery. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not going to work. Verse 28, you have heard it said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, they're dealing with the physical nature of adultery. They're trying to pass this off and say, I'm okay, I have not committed adultery. There's been no physical act between me and someone else. He says, no, you've got to deal with your heart. You've got to deal with your heart. You've got to deal with what is happening here. What are the things that you're looking at? Where are the places that you go? What are the things that you are doing that is an adulterous thing that pulls you away, that, that pulls your heart? Because God has created marriage to be a situation where two become one, we learn. Become one flesh. And this binding, this, this, this binding that comes between two individuals who are married in the presence of the church, in the presence of God's people before the Lord, that is a bind that is supposed to hold forever. He says, you're, you're messing with that. You're tearing with that. And here's what you should do to make sure that doesn't happen. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He continues on, verse 30. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. You see, in their time, in that generation, in that time, marriage had been reduced to monogamy. And that is very much what we have it reduced to today as well. And Jesus says, there's no place for that. He uses these extreme examples. Why the right eye? Why the right hand? Well, in their culture, in their time, the right eye was the good eye. Meaning this, that, those of you who are left-handed, you know, I'm sorry. But the rest of us are going to, we, we get it, right? We understand. The right eye, the right hand was the strong hand. And, and particularly in their culture, they would use the left hand to do work that they didn't want. That they would try to keep the, the right hand clean because that's the good hand. And the left hand, they would do unclean things with the left hand. Because they didn't want to be ceremonial unclean with their good hand. But Jesus is telling them, he said, even if it's your good eye, if you can't see it all, if it's all cloudy, if it's all, if you're just, you know, you'll be reduced to being a left-handed person and you'll have to face the world as a left-hander if this is the case. He says, cut it off. Get rid of it. Because it would be better for you to live your life with one eye 
It would be better for you to live your life with one hand, with one arm, than to be living your life in sin. To be living your life in a way that has pulled you away. And so I'm not asking you this morning, I don't think that Jesus was asking his listeners that day either to go and begin gouging their eyes out or cutting their limbs off. What he was trying to say, and what I want to repeat to you this morning is to be able to say, whatever it is that is pulling you away, that would be called adultery in the sense of adultery of the heart, cut it off. If that's a website that you're looking at, get rid of it. If that is a device that you use, get rid of it. If that is a a novel series that you're reading or a television show or a Netflix series that you have, cut the cord. Get rid of it. You don't need that subscription. You'll get by. Cut it off. And so many times when we come in together in meetings, men meeting with men in particular, I can speak to that directly Someone who is, who is in sin and in pornography or in, in even in a, a lighter sense perhaps. So many times, believers in Jesus Christ are not willing to cut it off. There's some of you, some of us, who need to be using a flip phone from this point forward. Because that other device in your pocket is not good. There's some of us that don't need a television in our home, not because the television is evil, but because it is a pathway to something else for you or for your family. Cut it off. You'd be better off not having an eye. You'd be better off not having an arm. You'd certainly be better off without that subscription at the end of the month if it meant that your relationship was whole. See, marriage had been reduced to monogamy. And here's what Jesus is trying to teach. Marriage is more than monogamy. But marriage is going to require a sacrifice. Marriage is going to require a sacrifice. To the extreme, Jesus is saying, here the sacrifice might be cut your hand off, gouge your eye out, get rid of something. That should be no surprise. Marriage is a sacrifice. And the Jews of that day had thought they had figured out a formula. They could live under the law. They could live at the standard. And Jesus is raising the bar and saying, no, that is not what the standard was meant to do. You're missing it. Marriage requires sacrifice. Let's go to example three. Jesus is going to review the baseline. This is the formula. And then he's going to raise the bar. Verse 31, he says, it has been said. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So here's the baseline. Relationship here has been reduced to the responsibility. So what's happening here, and there are many examples, uh, uh, biblical examples that are given, uh, we can look through scripture, and I'm not going to get all into this because there's later in Matthew, Jesus deals with divorce a little bit deeper. But what is happening right here when we talk about a divorce certificate in that culture, in that time, a woman did not have that many rights. And so if she were abandoned by her husband, she would be in a bad way. Even in our current culture, that happens at times. But because of divorce, the woman would be in a bad way. She would not have any way to provide for herself, for her children, for a home, a place to live. She could not own land, all of those things. She would be in a bad place. And so there are these Jewish people who have decided, well, to get past that, I am going to give her a legal uh, letter of divorce, certificate of divorce, so that she can live her life in a different way without me. And so what they've done, they've done the quote-unquote responsible thing. 
to take care of her to make sure that everything is going to be okay. And that translates to our culture. 2,000 years later, how many times do you look at a situation, look at a family and say, yeah, you're doing the responsible thing, right? You're paying the bills. You're providing a home, but what you're doing is ripping this family apart. This relationship is destroyed. It's an awful thing. But when relationship, a marriage relationship, romance, has been reduced to responsibility, something is missing. And Jesus raises the bar. Verse 32, he says, I tell you, so you've heard it said, but I tell you, that anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. This is the only example he gives here. Other examples are given elsewhere in Scripture. But he makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What he is trying to explain here, what he's giving the illustration here is to say that you have a systemic problem in your culture of divorcing women and calling it okay. And then someone else comes along and he marries her and then he divorces her. There are, there are stories that are told from this historical period of, of a woman burning toast. Not toast like in the sense that she was using a toaster in our context. But burning bread and that the husband would divorce her over it. He writes a certificate of divorce and then she would remarry. It's absurd. Because relationship would be reduced to responsibility. Well, I'm doing the responsible thing. I'm paying the bills. I'm doing that. But Jesus says, relationship is more than responsibility. Romance, biblical romance in the confines of marriage, what we see in the Song of Solomon, relationship there is more than just responsibility, isn't it? Relationship requires sacrifice. He's challenging the listener, he's challenging the couple, he's challenging the marriage to, to work it out, to do all that can be done to keep marriage together. Again, there are other passages that do with this in Scripture. We read it in the epistles. There are examples, there are times when divorce happens. But systemically, what he is dealing with here is the ease in which they were divorcing one another. And doesn't that match our culture today? A lot of times we start to point fingers and we say, well, now we live in a culture where once it wasn't this way, now 50% of our culture is now divorcing one another. Do you know what the reality of the situation is? Is now the divorce rates are higher inside of the church than they are outside of the church. We're at somewhere between 54 or 55% within the church. Now those statistics are there because generally speaking, Two believers that get together or they, they meet each other in the church get married. And maybe out in the world, uh, out in the secular sense, maybe they wouldn't get married. Maybe they just live together and then they would separate so they don't match up on the statistics. But the reality is, is that within the church, we too systemically have a problem here where we have missed the point. And I know, based on those statistics, 50% of this room then has lived these passages out has seen this come to fruition. And just like the previous passage, Jesus is teaching, maybe it would be better to live life, to go through life, having to sacrifice, but keeping things intact. Which is the example he gives. It lines up with the next example. Again, you have heard it said, verse 33, to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. Now, I'm making the connection with marriage vows. 
But there was many different vows that they were making in their culture in that time. There's a commitment that they were making to each other. But what happens here is that a commitment has been reduced to a contract. A commitment has been reduced to a contract. You go a couple more slides there, guys. Yep, there it is. Verse 34 says this. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, because you can't make even one hair on your head white or black. All you simply need to say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus looks at the baseline, and he says, what was meant to be commitment, you have reduced to a contract. Commitment has been reduced to a contract. Meaning that there is supposed to be a commitment that is being made. And, and they are finding ways, they are they're finding to swear their commitment by. They, they look off in the distance, I, I, I swear that I will keep this as long as that building stands, I will keep my commitment to you. As long as, and they fill in the gap. And, and the higher level of the standard that they use, so by Jerusalem, as long as Jerusalem stands, I will keep my commitment to you. As long as, as God's throne stands, I will make my commitment to you. Or, or, or as long as, and they started to fill those things in, I will keep my commitment with you. But there was always this loophole, it would seem. There was always this way out. And Jesus says, if you're going to make a commitment, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says, everything else is coming from the evil one. Everything else is designed, by design, you're looking at the situation, you're trying to create a way to get out of having a true commitment with one another. The commitment has been reduced to a contract that you can find a way out of. Jesus is teaching that commitment is more than a contract. A commitment requires sacrifice. There it is again. A commitment is going to require sacrifice. He said, you cannot commit in any way to change your hair from black to white or white to black. Some of you are attempting that all the time, changing your hair color. Jesus says, you cannot simply make a commitment or make a prayer or make, uh, I will turn my hair white if I don't pay you back. Okay, okay. Commitment is more than a contract. It requires sacrifice. If you're going to commit to somebody, you're going to sacrifice to keep that commitment. Jesus continues on. He reviews the baseline once again. Example number five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The concept here is a concept of moderation. Moderation, reduced to retaliation here or an obligation. I'll explain that in a second. Moderation, meaning that if someone has committed a crime against you, if someone has come onto your property, the Israelites had very specific rules against these things. If someone comes onto your property and kills your ox, you can go onto their property and you can kill their ox, but you cannot kill their ox and their chicken. This was kind of, they, I wanted to make sure that this was, uh, there was a, a moderation of the response that was going to happen. And even in that situation, that then those animals would be used to feed the families in the process. If you had uh, on your uh, family farm, if you had a, a hole in the ground that someone steps in the hole and they twist their ankle or they break their leg, then the retaliation that was permitted was that they could break your leg as well. But they couldn't break both of your legs. Couldn't break your shoulder or break your face. 
the whole idea behind this was being able to moderate, to be able to understand, yes, things are going to happen, but there's this balance that is happening. That was the Old Testament law that was in place, is that if someone gouges your eye out, you can retaliate, you can respond, but there's a certain level of moderation in which you can do that with. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus raises the bar, verse 39. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. So Jesus is teaching them that if, if they've been struck, if you've been struck on the right cheek, that you are, are going to turn the other cheek as well, rather than taking the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and striking back. And going back to the idea, why is this the right cheek? So actually, in that culture, in that time, again, lefties, welcome back to the conversation. So uh, the left hand is the dirty hand, is the filthy hand. So if, if someone is being struck on the right cheek, someone has struck them with their left hand, is what's happening here. So they have used their dirty hand, their unclean hand, to strike them on the face. And Jesus says, not only are you going to turn the other cheek, but you're going to turn so that they have to hit you with their good hand as well. So he's raising the bar. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you, they want to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, in their culture, they, they wore something like a toga party, right? They, they wore something like that. So if they're taking off their shirt, they don't, they're taking off their coat, they don't have a whole lot underneath as well. And so particularly in that culture, he's saying, if, if you have to take off the shirt off of your back, if somebody sues you for the shirt off your back, you're going to give them your shirt as well. You might not have many clothes on. It might get super awkward. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Go the extra mile. You've heard this phrase before. The idea is in Roman culture, we would see this. That, that they actually had as part of their law would be that the Roman guards, they would be able to tell uh, those that they were over, that they had dominion over. They could, they could make someone carry their uh, gear a mile. But there was this law that said, but you can only make them carry it a mile. And someone else is going to have to pick it up. And so the Roman guard would move through a city. And he would just have different people he'd pick up on the road. But then they would have the mile. They could go back to their own property, their own land. And he says, no, when you pick that thing up, why don't you go the extra mile? Why don't you carry it a little bit further too? There's a bit of stubbornness in Jesus' voice as well. He's requiring that guard to, to actually deal with the fact that this person is doing something in generosity rather than out of obligation. Verse 42 says, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You see, moderation, this big idea of moderation has been reduced to, well, as long as I don't do anything more than they did to me, retaliation. Or as long as I do what I've been obligated to do, as long as I carry the gear a mile, like I was told that I have to, that the law requires. But moderation is actually more than an obligation Jesus is teaching. Moderation, guess what, requires sacrifice requires sacrifice. Jesus is teaching them to go beyond what is required, go beyond what is obligated. 
And by doing so, he is raising the bar. Last example. Jesus is going to review the baseline. He's going to raise the bar. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What's really happening here is that love has been reduced to tolerance. When we are told to, to love your neighbor, so this was happening in their culture again. They had all these different people coming in and around them and living near them and living around them. And he said, they're being taught. The Israelites are being taught and they're sharing well. You've got all these different cultures that are being intermingled with you, particularly in different times that they were under a foreign rule. There was people being forced on them. But they were being told, they were being told, love your neighbor, love the people that are around me and hate your enemy who's far away. Hate that person who's far away, but the person who's here, even if they don't look like you, even if they are, are pushing things on you that you're not, you should at least love them so that you can be at peace with your neighbor. So love is being reduced to tolerating one another. Tolerate the fact that this foreigner has been placed in your community, that he is going to live here, or that, that you have been pulled out. Look at Daniel and, and, and the, the guys who were there with the uh, fiery furnace. I'm trying to remember the first name. Madchak, Rechak, and Abednego, but that's not right. Something along those lines. Being pulled into this other city, living where they don't want to be, and, and they're being told, keep, keep the peace. Tolerate the situation and tolerate your neighbors that are around you. But Jesus says, verse 4, for I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the sun to rise. Every single day he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rains on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors, which those were the slime of the earth at that time and 2,000 years later. Some of you got that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Love has been reduced to tolerance. But love is more than tolerance. And you better believe that love requires sacrifice. So six different times here, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you are familiar with the law, but I am going to tell you something. I'm going to raise the bar a little bit higher, a little bit higher. I told you at the beginning that when I began pole vaulting, I was clearing seven feet, then 10 feet, then 11 feet, then 12 feet. Jesus is just escalating this thing higher and higher and higher and higher until verse 48, he says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He just took the bar and pushed it through the ceiling. Because God requires a perfect sacrifice. And at this point, Jesus is not raising the bar out of our reach with any intentionality. He is actually demonstrating what the truth is, is that Jesus is the bar. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. 
As I began this passage earlier, I was standing here just a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. What did Jesus preface all of this by saying? 5, verse 20 says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses what? Those are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So these are the guys that got it all figured out. They, they know the law, and they are living within the law. They are living with every little bit of the law. They are the judges. They are the lawyers. They are the rulers of the day. They know the law inside and out, and they are living it. And he is telling his listeners, there on the mountain, unless you live at even a higher level, and then he gives them these six examples, he said, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. God requires a perfect sacrifice. God requires a perfect sacrifice. A familiar passage, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now for me, the picture that comes to my mind every single time I see that verse, and I think that it is because I was a high school pole vaulter, the idea that no matter what, you and I as humans on this earth will always fall short of the standard. No matter what, on your best day, on your very best day, perhaps your best day is ahead of you and you're going to live a wonderful day. You get everything perfect, but it's going to fall short. And maybe your best day is behind you and your worst days are ahead of you, but that best day wasn't good enough, friends, because all have sinned, all humankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because God requires a perfect sacrifice. As the band comes forward this morning, as we come to a close in our conversation here today, let me transition us over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul. He is dealing with uh, the, the leaders of the day, excuse me, the Apostle Peter. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law. So this is the same group of people that Jesus was talking about. They met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So he's the, the highest of, of the, 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 the priests there. And so is Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the others of the high priest family. This, these are the elite. Verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power and by what name did you do this? What did they do? We'll find out. Then Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers, elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for the act of kindness that we showed to a man who was lame, they spoke to him, and this lame man was healed, then verse 10, know this, that you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from this dead, that this man stands before you healed. The lame man could walk. He had been healed because of this Jesus of Nazareth. And he points out it is he who was crucified. Because who is he? Verse 11. Peter says, Jesus, the stone that you builders, he's looking in the face of those who had lived by the law their entire lives. And Jesus had raised the bar and they missed it. That God requires a perfect sacrifice. When they came to the altar, there was a system that they had in place to make sure that the lamb that was going to be slain there at the altar was a perfect lamb. They had that sacrifice. They understood that. But they missed it when it came to the perfect sacrifice that is Jesus. They rejected it, they say. The stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Raising the bar. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. That's it. There's no other way. If you're watching from home, if you're here in this room, there's no other way. It's all about Jesus, friends. I know that that doesn't surprise you, but he is the bar, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the standard. That's it, the wonderful, powerful, beautiful name of Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you've spent your whole life searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching for answers. Maybe you've been a part of this church your whole life searching for those things and you've missed the thing that's right in front of you. His name is Jesus. Maybe you've tried to answer those questions that you don't even know how to put into words. But I want to tell you that you can find it here. You can find it here this morning. If you're watching online, if you're watching it later during the week, you need to know you can find it here today. His name is Jesus. The meaning that you've been looking for, the completion to to every hole that you've been trying to fill in your life, it's Jesus. You've been trying to fill it, but it's Him. He's the only one who can fill that. It can only be found through a relationship with Jesus. If that's you today, if you are here in this church, we desire to live in a way, and to live in a way that helps you and, and one another to be able to navigate life through that. We're a church, and we say this often, we're trying to help you find your place. In this church, in the church, not just this building located at 6301 Main Street, no, the church as a whole, we are to provide free access to the family of God, the best family you could ever be a part of. And at the head of that family is the most wonderful, loving, and holy Father. And he sacrificed his son for you and for me so that you could have a relationship with him, so that you could be a part, so that you could be called a child of God. And to be into relationship with him, you don't have to do anything except accept the gift that he's offered to you. He's already done the work, and all you have to do is accept it. Raise your hand, accept it, and say, if you are here and you'd like to start that journey, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you to do this. Would you pray this prayer with me today? Heavenly Father, thank you for making a way for me. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own. Forgive me for every mistake that I've ever made. I believe in you and I want to pursue you with all that I am for the rest of my life. I am yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand, church? Would you stand? If you prayed that prayer this morning, welcome. Welcome to the family of God. For those who call on his name, then he will call the children of God. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll be in the back. You can come up and talk to me. Or you can write it down on a connection card. They're there in front of you as well. And you can say something to me like, I, I asked Jesus to take me over the bar today, and I'll know what you mean, all right? I'll know what you mean. We can have that conversation. But right now, let us raise our voices. Let us sing about the powerful, wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.